The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So I'm going to be leaving tomorrow to teach a retreat out in IMS in Massachusetts. And then when I come back on the 9th, then the next I'll start a four-week retreat. So we have a really great collection of teachers coming over the next four and a half weeks. I'll be back, I think it's the 4th of June, to teach. But uh, next Sunday night, Anushka will be here. And she's also doing a day-long retreat, uh, or not retreat, but workshop on Saturday Meditation as Love, highly recommend Anushka, a wonderful teacher from the West Coast, mostly at Spirit Rock in Northern California, but also teaches at IMS and other places around the country. And then uh, other folks will be teaching later in the month. So those schedules are in the weekly email. You can find out who will be teaching in the weeks that I'm gone. So we've, uh, some of you have been reading along in Ajahn Sushito's book, but this is the last night we'll be talking about it. And it's been our complimentary text. You can always download it later. It's just a great um, this is a great book about Dharma practice, meditation practice. Ajahn Sushito is a Western a British Buddhist monk who comes to the States and teaches. And uh, as you might expect at the end of a book about meditation, He, in different ways, talks about the fruit of practice and why we practice. And we talk, you know, sometimes I came across this one phrase that I like a lot, the unprovoked awareness release as a description of, like, what are we doing? What is this about? Or the unshakable release of the heart. Peace is a good word. A heart that's that has a peaceful relationship no matter what shows up, no matter the circumstances. So a peace that's not about the fact that the circumstances are nice or the way I want them, but a peace that doesn't come and go. That could be understood as the fruit of practice. And really, every time we sit, every time you come to a center like Common Ground or have your daily sit at home, you put aside 30 minutes, let's say, or an hour if you're lucky, or 10 minutes if you're not lucky, but you put aside some time, and you know for that period of time, I don't need to check my cell phone, I don't need to worry about my pet, the people I live with know not to bother me. And it's a for a beast, I talked a little bit about this, I think, last Sunday, for an animal, which we are, to put aside concerns of survival, both on, a, you know, on the level of shelter and food, but also on a social level, making people like me. You know. All the different ways, socially, in a more materialistic way, all the ways that we try to be safe, We put that aside for our 10 minutes or 30 minutes or hour and we sit down in a comfortable way, an upright way that supports alertness. And we're purposefully not trying to get anywhere. 
not trying to fix anything, in a, in a real sense, not even trying to do something. Like even the idea to do meditation is not quite right. I mean, in a way we're doing something, but it's a very specific doing. We're interested. There's one desire that's allowed, right? This wholesome desire to want to connect with the way it is, to open, to know the way it is in order to understand. In order to develop an understanding that is in alignment with the way it is. So this isn't meant to further, to like increase the odds that we're going to survive or increase our wealth or increase our social attractiveness or anything like that. So that's a pretty profound thing for a human being to do. I mean, I know we waste a lot of time but it always seems important, you know, when we're reading the news or watching TV or doing whatever. But to say that all of those interesting things, all of those things we actually should be doing, like cleaning the bathroom or writing the resume or whatever it might be, I'm not going to do that now. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to purposefully disconnect, put aside duties and responsibilities. And I'm going to take refuge in this observing, this being open to the activity of the mind and body. I'm going to just let the mind and body do what it's going to do, but I'm not going to be engaged in the doing, so my mind might think about the past or think about the future, but I'm going to be observing that mental activity as opposed to being identified, lost caught up in that mental activity. Because we can't really observe or learn when we're lost in it, attached to it, right? We observe in this neutral, non-judging way, oh, this is the activity of the mind. This is the activity of emotion. This is the activity of seeing. This is the activity of hearing. This is the activity of feeling, sensation, And we're letting all of that move, because that's what it does anyway. Seeing moves, hearing moves, sensing sensation is a movement, thoughts are a movement. It's a conditional, lawful movement. One thought conditioning the next. Sounds move in a conditional way. Right? There's always causes for the sounds we hear, causes for the sights we see, causes for the thoughts we think always ever flowing onward. So we're, <clears throat> we're cultivating this wholesome desire to want to see clearly the way it is, to open to the way it is, because it's a powerful affront. It's a provocative challenge to the way our mind constructs meaning. And we do this practice because we've, intuitively, or been told, or we intuitively have realized that part of what's causing so much suffering here is the meaning my mind brings to the moment. The meaning my mind is creating, and then I live inside of. 
for those who haven't read this book, near the back, near the end of the chapter, or end of the book, rather, um, Ajahn Sushito uses a simile that he made up, but it's similar to this teaching from the Discourses of the Buddha. He just maybe has, tells it in a more contemporary way as a person being in prison, solitary confinement, six by eight cell, no windows, gray walls. You know, that would be pretty oppressive just to be there day in, day out. It would feel very claustrophobic to probably all of us, very oppressive. And then somehow, through some way, a teaching gets to us in that cell that says, you know, we've been in that cell for as long as we can remember. We don't even remember anything but the experience of being in the cell. And somehow some information gets to us that says there's something outside of the cell. And if you undertake this, if you do what I tell you to do, you will know for yourself. You won't have to believe me telling you that there's something outside. And so we get some instructions, you know, to dig, basically, or to scratch at the wall. So the equivalent of our instruction, which is to cultivate the stable, continuous, present moment awareness and observe the activity of the mind and body in and of itself. Not our idea of the activity of the mind and body, but just thought is just thought, moving. Like I said, seeing is just seeing, the movement of seeing, movement of hearing, the movement of sensation. So in the simile, it's you're scratching, right? You take your spoon, the only hard thing you have, and you scratch. And, and slowly, decades, you dig a hole through the cement block, and all of a sudden, there's a little hole, and some sunlight shines through, and some fresh air comes through. And now you're not dependent on that teaching you got that there's something beyond the prison cell. You know for a fact, because you, you've got this little hole, and you sense it directly. Now it doesn't matter if somebody told you there's nothing. It's all just this. This is it. This is all of reality. It doesn't matter, because now you know you have direct experience. There's something beyond. You can imagine at least initially, there would be a lot of energy. It would be a pretty enlivening experience to realize your life is not limited by this six by eight gray cell. There's something else. You'd be pretty motivated, right, to keep up with the practice, scraping, 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 maybe another 40 years later, and then you can get your head out. And you can really look around. You can get some much deeper sense than just looking through the little half-inch hole. You get a much deeper sense of this more expanded view of what is happening, what this is, what's possible, right? Which would just inspire you more and more, you know, and you'd keep scratching. And eventually, after many more years, you could squeeze your shoulders, your whole body through, and you'd wander around in that open space. And then, because you're not quite trusting, you'd crawl back into your cell at night because it's familiar, right? It's like they, evidently, this happens with uh, animals, wild animals that have been caught and maybe repaired, and then they, but they've been in captivity for a while, and now they're released, and they 
initially they don't leave the cell even though the door is open, like they'll take a temporary cell and put it in a wild setting where that animal might do well. And then they open the door, of course, and the animal stays put for a while, right? And then maybe after several days, maybe even longer, it takes some excursions. And then hopefully one day it doesn't go back to the cell. It's like not no longer dependent because even though it's oppressive, it's what we know, it's what's familiar, it feels like home. And this is uh, Ajahn Sushito, and it's this simile of a prison cell has been used many times by contemporary teachers. I remember reading uh, or maybe hearing Carol Wilson talk about this. She's a well-known insight meditation teacher. And you know, one thing she said about this simile is, Mostly, we're content spending our time rearranging the furniture in our six-by-eight cell. You know, I think I'll put my blanket here. I think I'll put my can I pee in over here, you know, and <laughs> just make it a little bit, oh, yeah, I like, I like the look of this. I think this is going to work better. <laughs> it feels fresh and maybe on some level more efficient or more functional. We're still in the cell. But it keeps us, you know, I'll get it right. I'll get it right. This is what we do with relationships and food. And is that window open too much? It feels a little, maybe too much. Maybe I had the thought, like in the middle of the set, you know. And, you know, it wasn't just me being neurotic because I was concerned about you folks. (laughs) It's like, oh, you know, I'm responsible. No one else is going to stand up. I'm the one who opened that window. I didn't realize it was blowing so hard, maybe. So it's always just rearranging the conditions to get it just right, as if when we get it just right, then something will break through, we'll be happy. But, you know, we spend our lifetime, it's like moving in meditation practice too. It's like, yeah, I can tolerate these sensations, but I think if I just make a little of adjustment, I'll be, then I'll really have a good set. Oh yeah, that's, that's better. But then there's, there's, always one, there's always another thing to do, to move. And at some point, if you've been meditating long enough, we get to this place where we still may move, but there's some wisdom in the mind goes, yeah, go ahead and move, but it's not going to change things. <laughs> or it will change things briefly, and then you'll be right back where you were. So you might, you might just try not moving. That's why as a ritual, as a form of practice, stillness is an important part of it. That's why we choose a length of time that we're pretty confident we can sit still for that length of time and then build on that so that we're really cultivating this form. It really makes sense where we sit down right in the middle of our life, we sit up, we sit in a still way, in a relaxed way, and we just let life rip. Mental activity, we just let it move. Physical activity, I mean, we're not moving the body, but whatever sensation, whatever movements happen, that's already happened. Now we're not moving with whatever happened. And there's, in that place of just letting everything happen, we can really observe. And it changes everything, this, this form of city meditation. And then we understand how to do it out in the world. Right? We learn how to find freedom it's actually, you know, there are problems with that simile about like needing to get someplace else, like outside of the cell. 
But the idea isn't that we're going anywhere, right? What the hole that we're digging, right, is through the obscurations of our own mind, the constructions of our own thinking mind. We're finding our way back to what's here and now. And what prevents that more complete, liberating opening to the way it is, is our mind, the attention is transfixed. It's addicted to the meaning our mind is creating, to the thoughts and the meaning that our thoughts construct. They're obscuring, they're seductive. Right? So that's why initially, like just to get ourselves to a cushion, we refine this resolve, like I'm ready to put it down. I'm ready to put aside some time where I'm not going to be trying to fix my life. I'm not going to be trying to become somebody or get somewhere. I'm going to do this primal research. So before I arrogantly think I know what I should do, I'm just going to open to what it is that's happening with no preconceived ideas. So before we can even do that, we have to develop that stability of awareness, that unfiltered awareness that can do that. That's why, you know, last week and maybe even the week before, I talked about the second part of practice is picking up a training like, well, let me use the sensations of my body to develop that muscle, that mental muscle, to be aware of sensation in and of themselves, to not bring anything to the experience, any expectation. So when I'm feeling the breath coming in and going out or feeling the other sensations in the body, my mind's training it to not be confused by the mental image or any mental content I have about the body or about breathing. So this is the real work, you know, this is the scratching through the cement block, is we're retraining the mind, we're cultivating this stable, clear awareness that isn't confused by old agendas, expectations, and the ideas we have. So then one of the things, so we might train with the body a lot, but after a while we're training with like the actual object of awareness. It doesn't matter if we're knowing a hearing, a sound, or a sight, or a thought, or a sensation, or emotion. What we're really noticing is that it's in motion. Right? This is like, turns out to be more relevant than the content of the thought that's zipping through my mind is that it's moving, or the actual hardness of the sensation, or the softness, or the roughness, or the smoothness, or the heat, or the coldness of whatever I'm feeling in my body. More than the particular quality of the sensation is that it's something that comes and goes. It's something that's in motion. The Buddha makes a big deal that everything in the world, the world of the mind and body, that means this world, everything in this world moves. It's conditional. It's changing. Now, generally when you hear something like that, the response is, well, yeah, I know that. right? Because we do. On an intellectual 
level, we know that everything's moving. But the only reason I resist painful sensations in my body or painful memory that is arising, you know how we get tight? Oh, God, I did that. Why do we resist? Because we think that what's arising, that sort of emotional feeling and the mental content, the mental image that goes with that memory, we think it's something substantial and real about me, right? But if we really understood it's just something that's moving on through, that just comes and goes, would there be this reflexive freezing up around physical pain or emotional pain or mental pain, even spiritual pain? No, we wouldn't resist. We resist because we think what's arising is about me in a permanent sense, right? So getting tight feels justified. Like, i got to defend myself from that thing that wants to show up. Like, I don't want it to show up. Or something's going away. No, I don't want it to go away, so I'm going to defend myself from the loss of this nice thing by holding on. So the reason we, the body-mind, the habits of the body-mind, what we call the personality or what we refer to when we say me, the reason I resist, the reason I struggle with experience is I think it's more than what it is. But it isn't more than what it is. Everything turns out to be something that comes and goes. We've had lots of nice experiences, I hope. Most of you have, right? And they came and went. All of them. And we've had, some of us, some really difficult experience. Things that we thought were going to kill us or things we thought, there's no way I can let this happen. And it happened anyway. There's probably many cancer survivors even in a room of 80 people, right? Or other terrible losses that people have experienced. Breakups or loss of a loved one or loss of a job, insecurity that showed up in your life. And it really feels like it's going to kill us. Sometimes we even feel like the fear is suffocating so much sometimes until it's not there anymore. So all of the tightness that comes with greed and wanting to hold on to what's good, all of the Tightness that comes with fear and wanting to keep something away, wanting to get rid of, destroy, comes because we misinterpret everything comes and goes. It's like even resisting death or resisting illness. It's like, do you, do you recall like when we're getting a cold? Initially, I mean, this is when we're not wise, which is a lot of the time, <laughs> Right? When we're starting to get sick, I mean, the first move generally is to be in denial. You know, I just probably talked too much today. That's why it's a little tight or something like that. You know, and then it becomes too obvious to deny. And then we get tight and start throwing things at us, you know, pills and gurgling, gargling, whatever. And, you know, I can't get sick. It's like hopeful thinking. And then at some point, there's like a tipping point where we realize resisting it is futile, right? It's like, and we just allow the body to be sick, you know, to take for the illness, whatever, to take its course. 
And it's, it's interesting how it's always a little bit surprising when we come out the other end. It's like, oh, wow. Because part of what w- was causing the resistance is somehow this matters in a permanent way instead of, no, this is something that happens for a while and then it changes. Now as I'm getting a little older, I just turned 59, it's like I notice that about winter or even, I, you know, if I look at the weather, like now it's going to be lousy for a few days, cold and wet, you know. But it's like, it's been cold and wet for a long time in my life, right? And so these two or three days when it's going to be kind of blustery and wet and cold, it's like, and then it will change. And I notice that too. It's like I'm not so entranced by really perfect days, you know, where there's no humidity and no mosquitoes and 65 and no humidity and just has a fresh feeling. It's like, yeah, but it's going to go away. It's just sort of interesting, this transformation. In Buddhism, we call this renunciation. It's a non-involvement with the highs and lows of sense experience. Because we know it's not something that matters to anybody in a permanent way. It's just a passing phenomenon where you know your friends are gathered and you're just in that sweet spot where everybody's getting along and the evening is you know, near the beginning so you're really delighting and the stories are fresh. And then after a while, it's like you're tired or you're ready to go or you've heard too much from this person. Now you remember why you don't like to spend too much time. Even though you still love these people, it's like, yeah, but I, I don't, I'm glad I don't live with them. And I'm glad we don't do this every week. And, right? and, and we sort of get that this is true about everything in life. It's like when I go home and I see the cat, there's sort of this delight that lasts for a while and then it's over. It's like, you know, feeling his body and and that little interaction. It's sort of like sweet. And then it's like, yeah, but what's on the internet? <laughs> or, you know, what's in the fridge? Or, you know, it's like it doesn't mean much after a while. Isn't that right? And if it does, it's sort of like we're trying to extract something from it. It's like, I need this relationship to deliver more. I haven't, I don't know what I need, but I think it's, I think you're the only one who can deliver it. (laughs) You know, so we hold a little bit more, you know, and we do that in relationships. We do that with food. We do that with the internet, right? And then it burns us. We realize that I'm trying to get something that can't be gotten. And we let go. It's like letting go is going to happen one way or another. Either wisdom in the mind sees that letting go is the way, and we consciously, with a wholesome resolve, aim in that direction. Or letting go comes to us because nothing else works. It it sort of, we suffer enough in trying, you know, like the rope burn trying to get something from life that life can't deliver. And so there's this natural process that happens where the first is our relationship to sense experience changes as we pay attention in life. 
And it either, it either gets transformed because we've been really badly burnt or we have some wisdom and it gets transformed because we've decided to pay attention to what sense experience is. It's something that comes and goes. The pleasant, the unpleasant, and the neutral. It all is in motion. Nothing lasts very long. Even life itself doesn't seem to last. I mean, when you're young, it seems like it lasts a long time. But I've been telling people, you know, as I get closer to 60, I see that a lot of, you know, when I'm being more reflective, it's realizing, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. Well, that's probably not going to happen in this life. Oh, no, I don't think that's going to happen either. It's like we start realizing that, yeah, this is probably a lot of what's going to happen, what I'm already doing, until I don't have energy to do that anymore. But it's funny, and it sounds a little grim, except it really frees us up like to not have to get that cabin on the south shore of Lake Superior. Some of you have heard me talk about that way too much. Now, also on the north shore, we've begun to look. Because <laughs> our time is running out. <laughs> but it doesn't seem to matter as much. you know, Or other things, like really getting in shape. It's sort of like, well, maybe I can just coast. Maybe I, I've, I'm beyond the point of like really getting in shape, and I can just kind of coast and just stay in well enough shape, you know, so that it's greased the wheel, so the dying, you know, isn't as painful as maybe it would otherwise be, or the aging process isn't as painful as it otherwise would be, and any other thing, you know, that we might have wanted to do. It's like, I don't need to learn a foreign language. Technology is improving so fast. It's like, why bother learning another language or studying things when you can just Google it? Or, or writing the best Dharma book. There's so many good Dharma books out there. You know, it's like, why would, we, why would anybody need to do that? And then life just gets simpler and simpler. Like, well, I'll just respond to what's showing up. I'll just do what's next. And, I, and it's more about doing what's next with a lot of integrity and joy and wholeness and completeness, like just letting that be enough instead of thinking that we need something special. In this phase of practice, it's not just a transformation in our relationship to sense experience, but a deeper part of the transformation. This is the equivalent of getting a bigger hole right in the prison, right? So the first is, you know, that renunciation or that change in how we relate to sense experience. Once we realize there's something out there, all of a sudden rearranging the furniture in the prison is less important, right? Because there's something way beyond the rearranging the furniture in the prison. And so we put our heart on that, like understanding, opening to that. And then the next is like, my imaginations, my perceptions, my ideas, mostly now as an ordinary human being, they're, it's a, they're important. And that's what we're reacting to, responding to all day long. Not reality as it is, but our thought, our perception of reality. So the second, you could say, second uh, fruit of practice is this deepening dispassion toward our projections, our ideas, our perceptions. We can still have wild imaginings, 
of me becoming somebody, me having this life, terrible things happening to me or to other people. But we realize that's an idea. That's just a projection, an imagination in my mind. And because we've got this intuition, this deepening insight exposure to this great mystery, our imaginings just don't hold up. Right? This sort of opening to freedom, opening to letting go, as the intuition deepens, as the inside experience deepens, it's like we're not even that interested in our fantasies or imaginations. And I bet we all have this to some degree. I remember, you know, I don't know, just as in a pre-adolescent, you know, maybe 11, 12, in that age range, that just like really uh, finding that my imagination was the most interesting thing in the world. And, you know, some kids at this age really get into reading, right, because it's their imagination. It's like some sense that ordinary existence isn't the ticket. And this is the thing about imagination. It's spellbinding. And then we never look back. I mean, it may get more grounded as we get older, our imagination. But now we're imagining sort of more mundane things like retirement or, you know, whatever it might be, a new kitchen renovation or whatever rocks our life. But the thing is we're lost in thought, even really mundane things like what our partner should do or, you know, what I should do to be the right kind of person that I would feel good about. But more and more, don't we get bored with these endless projections and imaginings and perceptions? It's like, and you know how I see this in my life is I'll catch myself with a subtle desperation, like trying hard to have some entertaining thought imagination, thinking of something, right? It's like, and I can't do it. And then I'll change the channel, like, or I'll think about this. Whenever I think about the cabins now, it's always like, the property tax, every, you've got to pay that property tax every year. <laughs> and then there's the maintenance, you know, insurance. And then it's like, either you're feeling stingy because you don't let anybody else use it, or you're feeling tight because you're, they're not going to use it in the right way and they're not going to clean up and then they're going to be rodents and then it's like, forget it. <laughs> so it's like, oh, I've got to imagine, I've got to fantasize about something else because that's just a headache. You know, it's like I long ago gave up fantasizing about Common Ground because that's a headache too. I mean, about it sort of becoming something bigger or better or, you know, more special. We, some of you know, we have this retreat property, and it's like now it's like people are so impressed of how we're letting it develop in a really organic way. It's because all desire, all sort of <laughs> attachment to what the retreat property should become has gotten burnt out of all of us leaders because it's so painful to sort of like want something to happen. And now, if something happens, it's going to be organic because, <laughs> you know, it's like there's no attachment. Because it hurts. I mean, there's always something that we, we get attached to. 
but then it gets burnt out. And so this is this layer of, of projection and imagination. And in Buddhism, we call that dispassion, like I'm dispassionate. No matter what my mind can create, I know it's just a mental projection, and it may either happen that way or not happen that way. And if it doesn't happen that way, I'll be disappointed. And if it does happen that way, I'm going to be disappointed because the reality never lives up to the imagination anyway. It's always a mixed bag. It's always an ephemeral thing. It's always in the process of changing. So even if we get something really nice, it's something about to be broken. You know, It's something that will be broken, will be taken away, will change. Guaranteed. And then it just goes on, you know, the, the awakening process as we, and it's all about, it's much more about a letting go of the, what was old, like being in the cell and transfixed about having a nice experience in the cell, or being in the cell and being lost in our imaginations about what's outside of the cell. And also we have to let go, like part of what the insights in practice lead to is letting nature be nature, is one way we can say it. And in our more direct subjective experiences, being willing to let go of being the doer, being the agent who does, who, who's doing, who's becoming. And so in Buddhist terms, we call this cessation, the cessation of being an agent doing. Somebody who has to do somebody, somebody who has to meditate, somebody who has to direct their attention, focus their attention, somebody who wants to become serene or peaceful. Eventually, through the continuity of awareness, we even want to let go of that burden of needing to do something. And with that maturing, there is that cessation, that moment of cessation. The mind realizes the mind free of doing, free of intention. This is the mind, like in conventional terms, we say being okay with the way it is, right? When we're really, when the mind, the heart is really okay with the way it is, there may be doing but there's nobody who needs to do anything, right? Because otherwise you're not okay with the way things are. But if the heart is really content, contentment to the nth degree, at ease, letting nature be nature, the personality may go on doing things. You may actually do something, like as a body-mind, but there's no somebody intending to do. There's nobody identified with intention it's just nature. Personality is nature. What you say and do is nature. It's not you doing it. But now that's not how it appears to us. I'm talking. I'm trying to say something to you. Sometimes we fall into this place, right, where we call it a mystical experience. We're playing basketball or we're you know, playing music or we're washing the dishes, or you're making love, or you're doing something, but the conditions are just right, and the mind is so absorbed, so released in the activity that it forgets 
to construct the sense of a somebody doing it. And we get a little taste of what the Buddha means by cessation, the cessation of doing. That it's part of the practice, not just revisiting, not just visiting that place once, but many times. And then the last stage, and I mentioned these briefly last week, uh, is translated usually as renunciation, or I'm sorry, as release or relinquishment. Because even when there's a sense of that freedom of everything happening on the, its own, there can still be a subtle conceit of how free this is for me, how amazingly free, how amazingly open. And there's a subtle sense of ownership of that freedom. So even that can be relinquished, framing the freedom in terms of me. So the third, I mean, there's freedom, a great growing freedom all the way along from the point, even when we hear the teachings that there's something more than this oppressive cell of me and mine, right? And we start to dig. Even that's liberating because finally we have something more to do than moving the furniture around. And even on an intellectual level, it makes sense. Like, oh yeah, that might be right. He may be right. The Buddha might be right. Let me see. Let me check it out. Let me start to dig. And we feel invigorated. Like, okay, it's, I got something to do. Because I was pretty sure that moving the furniture around more wasn't really going to make a difference. So, so even there's some freedom, a taste of freedom there. Just like there's a taste of freedom. It sounds a little grim to say that we see the limitations of sense experience. But at least we're not wasting our time thinking that going to a fancy or a special restaurant that we haven't been to is going to change our life. It may be a nice meal, but in the big scheme of things, it's not going to matter having a nice, pleasant experience, as nice as even a really nice one. I get these amazing bodywork sessions with this person that I've been seeing for a while now, and they're really wonderful. And then they're over. <laughs> you know. And life is pretty much like it was before. I mean, I think long-term, I hope, it makes a difference, you know, just having a little bit more ease in my body. But I don't think it's going to save me, you know. But sometimes, you know, it's like, especially with healers, there's so many different kinds of healers out there, you think, like, if I just get the right healer, or maybe a psychic, you know, and that person will be able to tell me something, and then I'll finally get my act together, and I'm going to be happy. So these projections, these chasing around sense experience or chasing around our own perceptions, we start to grow disenchanted with that. So that's the renunciation, the dispassion, the cessation of doing, all the way to the relinquishment of any conceit whatsoever in the mind. No way the mind is framing anything in terms of self, in terms of something outside of the whole of the activity of nature. And that's the deepest release piece or the unprovoked awareness release as Ajahn Tanisaro translates it. And generally he translates the word Nibbana, Nirvana as the unbinding, which is a nice way I think of translating the unbinding of the heart. What is tight, what is bound up, that squeeze, that energetic squeeze that we feel it's the release, the complete and full, unshakable release of anything that feels 
tight or entangled or held or heavy. So I'll leave it here. be nice to hear from a few of you. We have about 10 minutes. Questions you have or your own experience in your practice that you'd like to share? What comes to mind? And remember, on Sunday nights, we do record. Kermit has his hand up at the back of the room. Thank you. Um, Could you please restate uh, in a succinct manner, I don't know if you can get this on a bumper sticker or not, but why we get tight and why we resist. That was worth, that would be worth hearing again. Yeah, well, part of it is that we're, the mind is identified with the struggling itself. It's like in a world where things are changing, we're looking for some ground. And, and one way the mind gets ground is struggling, right? And we do this in our songs and our poems and our novels. We really rarefy, idealize struggle, don't we? We sing about it, we praise struggle, because it feels real. That's the reality we know, that's the reality we trust. And that's why in practice, one of the most uh, sizable obstacles for us is to relax, because we want to turn our spiritual practice, our meditation practice, into a struggle, we go in nobly on our high horse, you know, and we're going to like slay the demons in our mind, fight the noble war, come out victorious. And even if we die in the struggle, it will be meaningful. But we're just in a drama of our own creation. And there's another way to relate to practice, which is this, it's so counterintuitive, like, is it safe to relax? Is it safe to open? Is it safe to trust the awareness that's already here and to recognize what the awareness is knowing, what the awareness is revealing? What does that set in motion? Because it's counterintuitive, the intuition, the conditioned intuition, you know, the habit energy to struggle, to nobly struggle, to get somewhere. And you even hear this in the Buddhist teachings because to engage the practice, initially we're going to have to use that delusion that there's a somebody who wants to get somewhere. But as we engage the process, all that gets teased out because it isn't useful. But it gets us to the practice. I want to fix this life. I want to be saved. That gets us to Kamagawa Meditation Center or to a book on Buddhism or something like that. And then if we really take it in and listen and reflect on the teachings, little by little, we tease out the self-centered struggle because ultimately it doesn't support the practice, even though initially it's the, for most, most of us, it's the only way in. Yeah, thanks, Kermit. Other thoughts that come to mind or questions? Yeah, over here. I want to pass the mic. Yeah, uh, his question actually um, brought something into my mind, something I have heard before. Uh, same question, once upon a time, Buddha was asked with the same question. And he was asked, what was the cause for suffering? And he said, it was the pleasure-motivated mind. In precise world, we the everyone... motivated mind, he said. And everyone of us are chasing some form of pleasure 
in terms of six senses, which are called salayatan in Pali. These six senses include, like you said, eyes, nose, tongue, body sensation, and uh, ears, and on top of that, mind. Science talk about mind chattering. Mind chattering is all about the nature of mind, which is always creating dhammas. It always brings in, brings out various thoughts. But the problem is not with the thoughts or not with the observation. Problem is with the attachment. And it is really something, it is really something that we can see even in the labs. When our mind get attached with three poisons, what we call raga, desha, and moha, we release aura in, in terms of, in Pali we call it nama rupa. And we are releasing energy. And that energy is into three colors, three basic colors, that red, blue, and yellow. And these are, these are actually reflecting our three main emotions, which are described as raga, desha, and moha. Yeah, so three the prob- delusion. So the problem is, we every time attached with craving, or every time attached to thoughts, or experiences, or observations, with attachment, there's a process which is called, explained as Paticca Samapada. It's explained very nicely and deeply. I don't want to take much time to talk about that. But the problem is, we are always motivated to sense-based pleasures, and we think that the pleasure is actually exists with the external objects and our mind or our brain or our intellectuality, we does not know that pleasure is something generated in mind, not really existent with the actual objects. So this was explained in Buddhism as Bayatena Dukkha. It means suffering comes because of this nature or illusion of mind. And that was the course of suffering. Yeah. And that's that, in that simile, the delusion is moving furniture in the prison cell, right? Because we know that there's not an inherent joy in moving the bucket from here to there. But in the mind, it generates a temporary kind of joy, which we get addicted to. Well, maybe it's even better if I move it over here and on and on. Thank you so much for sharing that. And we have time for maybe one more person. Yeah, please. Hi, uh, my name's Mary Laurel, and um, so my question is more about the world as it is right now and seeing that as nature unfolding or seeing, uh, to be specific, Donald Trump unfolding in what Mm -hmm. he's doing and feeling compelled as a person who's somewhat awake and saying, my life has to, I have to move in some direction that it causes something else. Maybe that's my problem right there. But how I don't know how you can stay in one place and say that's nature unfolding, feeling and feeling that draw. And so then, then, then what? I guess then how do I proceed without getting attached to wanting results or whatever I'm not supposed to get attached to? <laughs> but right. uh, so I'm, that's what I'm struggling with right now because I can. It's really serious times, and so. Yeah. But greed, anger, and delusion has been unfolding forever, right? 
and it's unfolding in our own heart and mind, and it's unfolding, expressing itself in our government officials and everywhere. And also, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion has its own forces, right? Own momentum in minds all around. And those are also natural forces, right? And these, all these forces of Greed and non-greed, aversion and non-aversion, delusion and non-delusion. These forces, as they move, this is what we call the movement of nature. It's already happening. So my question back to you, like your question, to summarize it was, some bad stuff's going on, and I feel compelled to act. Right, so what's in the way of action? What's in the way of, of you and I and everybody responding as best we can to what we're aware of. And why not respond? So being aware of these six forces, you know, the wholesome roots and the unwholesome roots, greed, anger, delusion, and the wholesome roots, being aware of them as they're moving in our own mind-body right here, and understanding the karma, like when I'm acting out of greed, things get tight. When I'm acting out of fear or aversion, things get tight. When I'm relying on distraction and denial, things get tight. When I'm acting with generosity or fearlessness or uh, sort of respecting and caring about non-harming and protecting and taking care of others, compassion, it's an enlivening, those are enlivening attitudes of mind, Right? They're healing to live our life out of those intentions or motivations. So the question is, what's in the way of this heart, this mind, acting skillfully in the world, responding skillfully in the world? Well, the only thing that can get in the way is we believe in fear, we believe in greed, we believe in aversion, we believe in denial and distraction. And we, and we can look at that like, does it really make sense, this complacency, this denial, this distraction? We can look at it and notice, no, it's actually a cause for stress. Because the world always needs a wholehearted response. This isn't the first time the world has needed a whole. It just seems that way, right? But the world has always needed that. And that's really what we're doing here is we're learning to respond not with fear, not with greed, not with aversion, not with delusion, but with you know enlivening motivations. But it will be nature doing that. I mean, it's like always, it will seem like it's me who's being brave or me who's standing up for what I think is right. But when we look at it, we'll see that, no, it can't be other than what it is. It's like that, that's sort of the story that I'm doing something good in the world that actually comes later. What comes first is this movement, right? Something arises and we can't, and you, they do sometimes interview people who do these sort of amazing things like jump down on the subway tracks to save somebody or you know, lead this movement that turns out to be this thing that made a big change in a country. And they always ask these people like, you know, how did you have the wherewithal to do that? And they always say something. I mean, the wise people, the humble people, honest people say, you know, Nobody, I didn't have that plan for that. You know, I just did the next thing. It was just like one thing that led to another. 
And it turned out to be this sort of, from a certain perspective, this great thing that I did. But it wasn't like I did that great thing. There wasn't anybody who did a great thing. It was just one thing after another. It was the right thing to do. Yeah, in hindsight, we can say this about it. But that's not actually what it was. It was nature, not self, that skillful action. Thanks, Mary Laurel, for bringing that up. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words, take enough time to let go of the words. Thanks, everyone, for coming. It's been great being here tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.